Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, substance abuse, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The night of January 14, 1979, was an ordinary night for 41-year-old Howard Altunian and his 50-year-old wife, Marcia Moore. They had finished dinner together when Altunian decided to see a late movie. He kissed his wife goodbye and headed out. He returned from the movie at around 1 in the morning, expecting to find Marcia in bed. But she wasn't there. At first, Altunian didn't think anything of it, They had friends in their apartment complex, so he figured she'd gone for a visit and lost track of time. Besides, nothing was out of place. Her wallet, passport, and purse were still there. He expected her to show up at any moment. However, as time went on and Marcia still didn't return home, Altunian grew more concerned. Eventually, he felt compelled to look for her, and he knew exactly where to start his search, the cemetery. Marcia loved to go on walks. One of her favorite places to walk was the cemetery. She was a very spiritual person, so she found it soothing to walk amongst those who had left this world behind. In addition, the cemetery was large, well-maintained, and she usually had it all to herself. It was freezing cold outside. Altunian bundled up and made his way to the cemetery. He paced between the graves, the waning moon illuminating the tombstones. He called Marcia's name. His breath hung in the air, and he waited in quiet desperation for a response. But no one shouted back. He searched until he was chilled to the bone. Altunian headed home, half expecting to find Marcia in their bed, ready to dismiss it all as a misunderstanding. But she wasn't there. By the next morning, Marcia still wasn't home. So, Altunian called the police. Little did he know, he'd never see her again. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our only episode on Marcia Moore. We'll cover her interest in New Age spiritualism as well as her experimentation with a powerful anesthetic and try to determine whether these things contributed to her disappearance and possible murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Marcia Moore was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1928. She was one of four children. Her family was well-off, and her parents encouraged education and an interest in literature. One of her brothers, Robin, would go on to write hit books, such as The French Connection and The Green Berets. Marcia's father, Robert, was a Harvard graduate who founded the Sheraton Hotel chain during the Great Depression. 
Robert's success meant that Marcia never really had to worry about money. Marcia's family, while exceedingly practical and successful in their business ventures, also engaged in several New Age practices. For example, even though they lived in New England, they built a meditation sanctuary in Ojai, California, to escape to with friends and explore the parts of humanity that remained unseen. As Marcia grew up, she gravitated toward these pursuits and began to explore spirituality in all its forms. She became a devotee of yoga. In 1947, Marcia married her first husband, Simon Roof, he shared her interest in New Age ideas and practices. For eight years, they remained in the U.S., but in 1955, they moved to India to further pursue their interests. They studied an assortment of religions and spiritual practices in India, but Marcia became particularly enamored with the study of hypnosis. She began to use hypnosis to access what she believed were her past lives. When Marcia and Simon returned to the States two years later in 1957, Marcia was determined to continue her studies, so she enrolled at Radcliffe College. She became a devotee of astrology and published her senior thesis on the topic. During her time at Radcliffe, she also became interested in the occult and reincarnation. These interests complemented her exploration of hypnosis and the past lives she discovered. Unfortunately, Marcia's relationship with Simon did not work out, and they divorced in 1961. Marcia had two more marriages afterward, which also ended in divorce. While she was disappointed that these relationships ended, she remained sanguine. In fact, while she was married to her third husband, Marcia hinted that she knew it wouldn't last believing that while their paths might diverge, for the moment they were meant to be together. Throughout these relationships, Marcia continued to explore new and alternative modes of thinking. In fact, in the late 60s and early 70s, she published books on topics such as sex, yoga, reincarnation, and astrology. Despite three failed marriages, Marcia seemed to have finally found love when she met Dr. Howard Altunian in the summer of 1977. Altunian was the deputy chief of the anesthesiology department at Seattle's Public Health Hospital. He and Marcia were an unexpected pair, to be sure. Though he had begun to show an interest in astrology, his world still mostly focused on the here and the now, the things that could be proven empirically. However, the deeper they fell in love, the more that Altunian became swept away with Marcia about the New Age elements in the world. He completely converted to Marcia's lifestyle. Marcia, the past few months have been some of the happiest and most rewarding of my life. Mine too. You've opened up my heart to a whole new world, and my life is all the better for it. Well, like I say, just because you can't see it, doesn't mean it isn't real. I've been thinking a lot about that. I love you, Marcia, and I believe that we are psychically linked. Oh, according to my readings, we are going to have a wonderful long life together. I want that life to start now. I know we have only been together for a few months, but will you marry me? Of course, of course! Marcia and Altunian were married in November of 1977. She was in her late 40s and he was in his early 40s. Knowing there was no time to lose, 
they began their life together. They moved into an apartment in the rural area of Snohomish County outside of Seattle. It was a beautiful, classic Pacific Northwest environment. Big trees, lush grass, and a mist that seemed to conceal everything. Marcia and Altunian would have long conversations about how best to expand their consciousness. They discussed yoga and meditation, among other paths. Eventually, their interest turned to drugs. Marcia had not been drawn to drugs for most of her life, instead choosing to pursue enlightenment without pharmacological aids. She had, after the urging of some of her friends, tried most of the en vogue drugs of the 70s, mescaline, LSD, marijuana. But she found those experiences lacking and described them as sneak peeks for a show that never came to town. But her opinion on drugs completely changed when she tried ketamine. It was a little-known drug at the time, having only been approved for use in the U.S. in 1970. However, after using it, Marcia became convinced it might be the key to unlocking consciousness. Fortunately for Marcia, she was married to a doctor who was familiar with this particular drug. As an anesthesiologist, I use ketamine to induce unconsciousness. The patient isn't awake, so it can't provide any window into a different level of consciousness. But that's at high doses. I took a very small dose, and it gave me a glimpse into the universe outside of this tiny planet. Marcia, you have a trained psychic mind. You might be the exception. I think it could help people. Altunian agreed to try the drug with Marcia, and after ongoing discussions, he soon became convinced that ketamine could indeed be an important therapeutic. In fact, he became so convinced that he quit his job to work alongside Marcia to try to prove their theories. They set up a foundation and began to conduct experiments on themselves, pushing the limits of what this type of therapy might be able to do. They took ketamine daily for six months, charting their reactions and realizations. Enthralled by the power of the drug, they published a book in 1978 titled Journey into the Bright World. After six months, Altunian stopped taking ketamine. He was no longer having the insights that he used to. Even though her husband had stopped, Marcia continued taking it daily. She strived for greater insights into herself and others. Altunian believed that Marcia's more powerful psychic mind was what allowed her to keep gaining insights when he didn't. By January of 1979, Marcia had been taking ketamine every day for 14 months. One friend noted that Marcia started to suffer physical pain. Her body seemed to be deteriorating. Friends begged her to stop, worried for her well-being, but she refused. She was convinced that she was on the edge of revolutionary psychic enlightenment. This was Marcia's state the night Altunian left for a movie, unaware it was the last time he would ever see her. Coming up, we'll look into the mysterious and confusing circumstances surrounding Marcia's disappearance. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. 
in books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outlaws like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. And now, back to our story. In the beginning of 1979, Marcia Moore and Dr. Howard Altunian were living what seemed like the perfect life. They were happily married, had published a book together the previous year, and had achieved what they believed to be a breakthrough in psychology through their use of ketamine. But all wasn't entirely as it seemed. Marcia's friends were concerned about her ketamine use and the chronic pain it caused her. In addition, the couple lived exclusively off of Marcia's inheritance. Then, on the night of January 14, 1979, Marcia went missing. Altunian called the police the next morning when his wife still had not returned home. Lieutenant Daryl Bemis arrived at the scene and began searching the apartment. The only thing that was amiss was a kimono that had fallen onto the floor. Marcia was an extraordinarily tidy person and would not have let something like that slide. The police, much like Altunian, were confused about the circumstances surrounding Marcia Moore's disappearance. As Altunian had already observed, there were no signs of forced entry and all of their valuables were still there. Dr. Altunian, can you think of any reason anyone might want to kidnap your wife? No. Not that I can think of. Does she have enemies? Does she have people that are obsessed with her and might want to take her as their own? Does she have money? Does she well, come from... um, she is from a bit of money. A bit of money? Her father founded the Sheraton Hotel chain. That's motivation right there. More than likely, you're going to get a ransom call soon. Lieutenant Bemis assumed that kidnapping for ransom was the only logical reason someone like Marcia would go missing. However, as the days passed without anyone contacting Altunian, the police turned their attention to another suspect, Dr. Altunian himself. Lieutenant Bemis's kidnapping theory had distracted him from considering the husband, someone who's normally a top suspect in a missing person case. The police finally looked into Altunian's alibi. They searched the house again, this time looking for anything that might have linked him to his wife's disappearance. But Altunian's alibi checked out, and they found no evidence in the house. Altunian, searching for answers himself, offered a different theory about why Marcia might have gone missing. Her persistent use of ketamine. See, in the physician's desk reference, it warns that ketamine can cause patients to become confused and disoriented, and even suffer from temporary amnesia. Ketamine? That's the drug they gave soldiers in Vietnam? Yes, exactly. 
When used as directed, it can treat the pain of serious injuries. So why would your wife take a battlefield anesthetic? She and I both believed it could provide access to a higher plane of existence. We were running studies on it. Marcia had been taking ketamine every day for the past 14 months. 14 months? Probably the most ketamine ever consumed by any human in recorded history. Marcia was in completely unexplored territory. Do you think she might have taken some that night? It's possible that she took some after I left for the movie and became disoriented. While the ketamine theory was interesting, Lieutenant Bemis still wasn't sure. If Marcia had truly just become disoriented, neighbors would have seen her while she was out walking, or someone would have found her in the morning. After all, she couldn't have walked very far, especially not in a disoriented state. Lieutenant Bemis and the Snohomish County Police searched the surrounding area again and were still unable to find anything. While it was impossible to rule out the ketamine theory, Lieutenant Bemis wanted to continue exploring other options. Besides, the lack of a body made the detectives believe that there must have been some motive behind Marcia's disappearance. The police were forced to consider another option, suicide. Doctor, this is a hard conversation to have, but I'm afraid we have to have it. What? Did you find something? Sir, is it possible that your wife wanted to take her own life? No, not a chance. I know it is a horrible thing to consider, but- No, there's no way. It's against her beliefs. What beliefs? Marcia is a devout believer in reincarnation. If you die by suicide, you are forced to repeat this life with all the mistakes and pain you've experienced along the way. Even worse, you might be doomed in every life forever, unable to achieve any spiritual growth, an infinite loop. Lieutenant Bemis was stumped. Marcia did not appear to have been kidnapped, nor to have died by suicide, nor to have been plainly murdered. But there was yet another possibility. Marcia could have simply fled. She may have wanted to start her life anew, and would therefore have no need or want for any of her personal effects. Lieutenant Bemis had heard of cases like this before. In order to fully explore that theory, he interviewed Marcia's family and friends. He wanted to see if she was dissatisfied with her life in some way, or if she had expressed any desire to start over somewhere else. But neither her friends nor family members considered this a remote possibility. Her brother Robin was particularly adamant against it. No, no, that would not be something my sister would ever do. Mr. Moore, certainly it is a possibility she that- She was devoted to her work and the people in her life. She was excited about the book she was writing. In fact, she was writing a book for my company and was very particular about deadlines. She would have let me know if she was planning something like this. Of course, Mr. Moore, but don't you think that- You wanna know what I think? I believe there's a chance she was kidnapped by someone who knew about her new age spiritual practices and didn't agree with them. What do you mean? Two years ago when I was in Rhodesia, I received a letter from a doctor expressing his condolences at Marcia's death. I immediately called my sister afraid that somehow she had passed and I wasn't aware of it. She told me that there was an occult group that was trying to scare her by sending that letter to me. 
Did she tell you anything more about who these people were? No. I pressed her on it, but she didn't give me any more details. I don't know if that was because she didn't know anything more, or if she was trying to keep me safe. But, Lieutenant Bemis, those are the people that would have kidnapped my sister. While Robin Moore's suspicions were unsettling, Lieutenant Bemis soldiered on with his traditional detective work. He continued calling her family and friends to test his theory. Most everyone had nothing to offer other than shock and dismay. Lieutenant Bemis eventually spoke to one exception, a friend of Marcia's who, for the sake of anonymity, we'll call Gwen. Gwen shared Marcia's New Age beliefs, and that shared connection is what drew them close to each other. Gwen told Lieutenant Bemis that a few days after Marcia was reported missing, Something odd happened. Gwen was out of the house running errands, but her 12-year-old daughter was home. The phone rang, and Gwen's daughter answered it. There was a woman on the line who asked her, with a notable Boston accent, if her mother was home. When Gwen's daughter said that her mother wasn't home, the woman on the other end said she would call back later, but she never did. While this could have been a simple coincidence of a misdialed number, Gwen felt it was more than that. She explained to Lieutenant Bemis that Marcia had contacted her several times in the past, whenever she was in trouble. Gwen was sure that Marcia was trying to reach out to her now as well. It's true that some psychics claim that people on the other side had attempted to use phone lines to contact the living. But for a skeptical, fact-based detective like Lieutenant Bemis, this seemed like an off-the-wall theory, but it would pale in comparison to a theory he encountered later that month. Prior to her disappearance, Marcia and Altunian had agreed to speak at the International Cooperation Council's Rainbow Rose Festival at the end of January 1979. It was presumably to be the largest gathering of psychics in the world. In fact, several of Marcia's friends had pointed out that there was no way she would have willingly disappeared before this big event. She would have never wanted to miss it. Lieutenant Bemis thought that Marcia's peers at the conference might have had some insights into the circumstances surrounding her disappearance. Lieutenant Bemis had been on the force long enough to see that cases break in all kinds of strange ways. Excuse me, sir. I'm investigating the disappearance of Marcia Moore. Did you happen to know her? Not directly. I know why you asked, though. This will probably sound strange to you, but us psychics here believe she dematerialized. Dematerialized? According to Indian philosophy, if you reach a high degree of consciousness like gurus do through intense meditation, your physical body can temporarily disappear. Huh. Have you ever known anyone to do that? Well, no, but just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean someone else hasn't, you know? Of course. Lieutenant Bemis didn't buy the dematerialization theory. He was much too practical for that. Though the truth is, almost all his theories had holes. Lieutenant Bemis knew that there was no way that Marcia could have just vanished. But after months of investigating, the circumstances of her disappearance were still a complete mystery. A mystery that would persist for years.
Coming up, we'll look into the effects Marcia Moore's disappearance had on those closest to her, as well as some tantalizing evidence that turned up years later. And now, back to the story. By the spring of 1979, the Snohomish County Police were at a loss. They had run down all their leads, and they were out of ideas. But that wouldn't do for Marcia's family and their Sheraton Hotel money. They hired a slew of private investigators to come and do their own due diligence. They ran down their own leads and conducted their own investigations. They focused particularly on Altunian. Altunian understood why the family would suspect him. In fact, he expressed that if the roles were reversed, he would probably suspect him too. He complied with their investigation wholeheartedly. Just like the police before, the private investigators couldn't find anything suspicious about Altunian, but that didn't stop them from trying. The private investigators were so desperate for a lead, they even tried to trick him. They told him that if they were able to find Marcia's body, he would be entitled to some of her substantial inheritance. But even if he did believe them, it didn't change what he'd been saying since his wife had first gone missing. He desperately wished he knew where she was, whether that be her body or her spirit. That knowledge would bring him deep, deep peace. But he didn't have it, and it seemed like he never would. The private investigators failed to find any new information or new suspects. But their failure did not deter Altunian, who dedicated himself to trying to uncover the truth behind his wife's devastating disappearance. He believed that he and Marcia were psychically linked, so he tried to contact her using psychic techniques they had developed. He would fast all day, do yoga, and take ketamine at midnight, all to prepare himself to contact her. After several attempts, he believed that he was making progress. He would often report back to his friends about what he discovered. To truly get out of my body, I can only reach her if I take ketamine. When I see her, she looks beautiful and peaceful sitting in a lotus position. But she's silent the whole time. She won't talk to me. And I think that's because she's amnesic. Altunian spent a year trying to find his wife. It took a toll on him, causing him to lose weight and basically go broke. After a year of searching and selling his possessions to make ends meet, Altunian decided that he had to get a job. He tried to return to his profession as an anesthesiologist, but found that he was blackballed by the hospitals in the Seattle area. He wasn't sure if becoming a persona non grata was related to Marcia's disappearance or to their ketamine research and the book they had published. Regardless, it was clear that the Pacific Northwest would no longer be a home to him. Altunian eventually moved to Detroit, finally able to get employment someplace that was less familiar with his work and his wife's mysterious disappearance. And so, as time went on, the case grew cold. The lack of evidence, suspects, or leads made it a true mystery. People tried to go back to their lives. Lieutenant Bemis and the Snohomish County Police moved on to different cases. The private investigators pursued other jobs. Altunian restarted his anesthesiology career, and Marcia Moore's family and friends tried to remember the woman that she was 
instead of just her disappearance. The case seemed destined to remain unresolved. That is, until the spring of 1981, when a tantalizing new piece of evidence was found on a piece of property less than 15 miles away from where Altunian and Marcia used to live. <coughs> oh, what's that? No, it can't be. Hey, come here! What is it? Look! Is that... I think so. My God. Hurry back to the house and call the police. I'll wait here and make sure nothing disturbs until they show up. The police came quickly, and on closer examination of the site, the detectives confirmed what the property owner suspected. It was a human skull. As they searched the property, they found another bone fragment nearby, possibly a leg bone. Detectives scoured the area for more bone fragments, clothes, or pieces of jewelry, anything that would give them a better understanding as to how this skull and bone fragment had ended up there. But they came up completely empty. The police then turned their attention to the skull itself. They noted that it had a hole in it, possibly a bullet hole, but the police couldn't say for sure what that hole indicated. After all, there was a lot of damage to the front of the skull, and it had been exposed to the elements for quite some time. While the hole was inconclusive, the skull luckily had a complete set of teeth. Police ran the dental records, and their discovery dredged up a decades-old mystery. The skull belonged to Marcia Moore. The discovery of Marcia's skull provided some much-needed closure and gave her friends and family something they could bury. But for her brother, Robin Moore, it only roused an old suspicion. Can you tell me whether the skull was cleanly severed from the body? No, sadly we can't. The environment has degraded it too much. Why? There are several cults that behead animals as part of their rituals. If we could determine how my sister's skull came to be detached, we might be able to confirm that she was kidnapped by an occultist. I will keep you posted, Mr. Moore. If we can make any determinations from this new evidence, you'll be the first to know. Thank you. While Robin Moore had become more convinced of his theory, for most others, the new evidence only complicated things further. Many wondered if she had wandered to that property the night of her disappearance, why was she only found now? And where was the rest of her body? In order to get to that property, she would have had to walk 15 miles in the freezing cold and cross several lanes of traffic. However, when police had questioned neighbors two years prior in 1979, no one reported seeing her. That seemed to make an abduction more likely. However, they still had no plausible suspects or motives for her murder. But why dispose of her skull and bone fragment on some random man's property? The discovery of Marcia's skull certainly generated plenty of excitement, but that excitement quickly faded. The skull didn't generate any new leads, and no one came forward as a result of its revelation. The case went cold for the final time. Ultimately, Marcia's skull is just another piece of her strange and unnerving disappearance. Over 40 years later, 
people are still interested in this case, and their theories seem to be more a reflection of themselves than anything else. Those with an inclination towards the mystical seem to believe Marcia reached a higher plane of existence. Others lean towards the notion that Marcia was the victim of a drug trip gone wrong. And still some might assume Marcia was murdered. After hearing this story, I think the most reasonable resolution for me is that Marcia Moore simply took too much ketamine and wandered out of the house. She got disoriented and succumbed to the elements. I agree. While it is certainly interesting to consider some of the possibilities proposed by her psychic friends, ultimately, Marcia's drug use makes the most sense to me. She could have been murdered, but the lack of solid evidence makes it impossible to make a real determination. Unfortunately, regardless of what any of us may think happened, it seems as though this case will forever remain unsolved. again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Marcia Moore, among the many sources we used, we found Anne Rule's book, Without Pity, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Morgan Beck, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.